the typical way one progresses in an orderly fashion through one's career is in fact so atypical. Many folks are, are absolutely sure about what they want to do and how they want to get there, but very few of them are right. And your exploration of people's career trajectories is just such a valuable contribution. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Ken Mandel has a gift for listening to other people, whether they're mentors, offering the advice that shaped his career in pediatrics and informatics at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, or helping physicians and patients learn from each other by making it easier for them to share information. He's a pioneering leader of a long-anticipated era whose time, it seems, has finally arrived. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunan. And I'm David Shewitz, and today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, David, I understand you had a pretty interesting experience at a virtual real-world evidence I know, so funny, a virtual right? real-world evidence, evidence conference yes. organized uh, by Duke. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, so, um, Mark McClellan and team at the Duke Margolis Center put together sort of, you know, some thing about the real-world ecosystem. And one of the nice and upside of some of this um, current situation is it's, it's, it's really easy to attend so many of these uh, conferences you know, even in quarantine. And this was a conference that was really focused on, on this fundamental challenge, which was why it's so hard to bring together, and I'm sure we'll talk about this with Ken, clinical care and clinical research. Because if without them being brought together, you sort of are practicing medicine blind in a sense where you're sort of doing things and you have some process measures that are being tracked. It's like, hey, are your patients actually getting better? And you don't even really know. So there's a feedback gap. I wrote, a, we'll include a link for this. I wrote, I wrote a whole kind of long, as people have said, piece on this. But it's really interesting about the challenges of closing the feedback gap in medicine. And also it's harder to bring together you know, you'd think, well, you're, you know, remember like what Amy Abernathy said, well, you're seeing a patient in one day in clinic and the next day you bring them back to enroll them in a clinical study. Why couldn't you just do it the first time they were there? But it turns out that a lot of what the information and the rigor on which you collect information, almost the obsessiveness of it is really hard to mesh with just sort of the exigencies of clinical practice. So really interesting topic. They had so many great people talking about it and, um, just a really great stuff. So hopefully I'll have a chance. Uh, we'll, we'll include the link. I'm sure that'll probably come up more than in passing in um, today's discussion. So with that, we are so delighted to welcome Ken Mandel to uh, today's show. Welcome, Ken. Thank you, uh, Dave and Lisa. Pleasure to be here. All righty. So Ken, I understand that your dad was originally from Vienna, but managed to get out uh, in 1938, which seems timely. A hotshot physicist, he did his grad school in New York, uh, where you were born, and spent your first two years, then went to D.C. for a couple of years, and then took a, a, an amazing job at a research institute in Boston, working on lasers. Meanwhile, your mom was a high school teacher who got a master's in English in New York. So in short, you came with your parents to Boston when you were five, 
and uh, except for a brief sojourn all the way to Providence, you've really been in town ever since. Is that right? Yeah, I've, in fact, since I came back uh, after college, I've been working in the same square block uh, for a very long time. Yeah, we call that the David Altschuler syndrome. Um, <laughs> so, so um, with, um, and, uh, and um, I'm sure uh, Hal Burstein and Mary um, and um, uh, George Daly will uh, probably plead guilty as well. Um, so with, uh, you can't comment on any of them, uh, with, uh, but I can. With a, with a mom inclined um, towards the humanities and a physicist father, it sounds like you had affinities for both. Um, what sort of things did you enjoy doing when you were growing up and in high school? Well, you know, I developed a, a love for working with children at a pretty young age. In fact, eight years old. Um, and so when I, was, when I was eight years old, I, I got pulled in to be sort of a coach in this drama group that was happening in the neighborhood uh, run by one of the mothers from the park. And, you know, from there, I ended up having a very strong focus on, on uh, working with young kids. I had the uh, two to five year old birthday magic part, ma magic show. Uh, uh, what was your big up. trick? What was your big I had that locked up out of the diaper? And yeah. Um, and I, I headed into college knowing that I wanted to work with kids in my career. Uh, and uh, what is it about kids that is so exciting to you? You know, I was fascinated by development and I started to really observe uh, the development and the sort of the cognitive development, the logical development, the ontological development of these kids early. And I, I would write about it in, in essays for school and majored in psychology then in college. Um, it's, it's really fascinating. I do that now with my dog. Um, <laughs> I, I'm very fascinated by her cognitive development. She's four years old, but it's, it's, a, it's really well, a fascinating it's, I guess it's good that you met kids before your dog or you would be an um, informatics vet now. Yeah, um, but it, I think that's a wide open field, by the way. <laughs> There's money to be made there. <laughs> so, um, all right. So um, you don't have to tell us what your best trick was. I guess magicians don't share. Um, but uh, so you went to college at Brown, which seems to be a remarkably common theme among our distinguished tectonics guests, um, from, you know, Tool and uh, Zach, among others, my, uh, my brother John as well, uh, and my wife. Um, and um, studied not just psychology, but also biology, anticipating a, a career in a child psychiatry. So um, I'm kind of curious how you came to that specific intersection. And did you have any inspiration from folks like Robert Coles? Um, yeah, so, um, you know, it was uh, actually a child psychology that I was gonna do. And I got, I got pulled into the medical side by my uh, uber pre-med nerd uh, roommate. Uh, and, you know, we either lived in the same room or next door to each other for three years and attended almost every class together because of our overlapping schedules. And I kind of rode his coattails into the pre-med track because it was just all done after, after a few years together. Um, Were you guys like the two intense people in like the sea of mellowness at Brown? <laughs> You'd be surprised how intense those pre-med. Actually, are. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be at all. But I, I, I know. I know. It's all. It's all a facade. I've heard. But uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, but, but, but the open curriculum there did make it very livable um, to, be, to be intense uh, and also to have a lot of freedom of uh, thought and the ability to experiment. But yeah, so I, you know, I ended up sort of going towards the kind of pediatrics side of the house uh, rather than the child psychology side. But that is what drew me into medical school. And um, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, the work of, of you know, the great um, child developmentalists, Kagan and, uh, you know, Robert Coles and others. Right, oh, well, uh, Kagan as well, inspiring. my gosh. I mean, you're in a great place for that. And, um, uh, you know, as the um, son of a, basically two developmental pediatricians, I can certainly appreciate that. Um, it sounds um, that so you, when you decided to go to medical school, you decided to wait for it, return to Harvard. Um, but it was interesting um, uh, because you were the member of the very first class of this whole entirely new, innovative program called the, uh, the New Pathway, um, which my brother, who also went to Brown, also did, while my other brother did the more techie. Uh, <clears throat> rigorous uh, health science and technology or uh, HST program uh, as did I. So um, I know you learn stuff, you know, everyone comes out very confident one hears, um, but they, they, you come, you emerge with very prof with profoundly different affects. Um, you sounds like you had an amazing experience in what was kind of a, a rigged almost it's rigged, but like a rigged yeah. first year of the program where they sort of did like a, kind of like an all-star version of it, which actually I think continued to persist. Uh, my, hot, my college roommate went, was in New Pathway and um, uh, it's an amazing experience as well. Yeah, you know, there were, there were 24 of us students and they threw the very best faculty in the world at us, uh, including uh, people like Judah Folkman, who I Just was amazing. privileged to have, you know, every morning in a group oh, of five man. students, just him, uh, for like eight weeks. It took him maybe two years to clear his surgical schedule because he was a surgeon as well as- But that's like private tutoring by Osler pretty much. I mean, it's yeah, incredible. It, it was. And, um, you know, and I'm still close friends with, a, you know, a large number of people from that group of 24. And it was spectacular. Interestingly, you know, the, a lot of the professors who were not involved in that curriculum would tell us every day that we would never be able to practice medicine competently at, on the basis of having been in this alternate curriculum. But it was really- Would they say that now? Experience. Would they uh, still say that? No, you know, things have changed. You know, it turns out uh, that the new pathway forgot to teach us actually uh, biochemistry, pharmacology, and microbiology. Um, because we use the case method. And when you have like a case on one drug and you spend a week on it, you really don't learn the other, you know, 5,000 drugs that you need. And the, the amazing thing is that the, the, you know, when it came time to take the college, the, the, uh, the boards, the medical school boards, uh, I uh, had to use the Lang series review books for these classes that we Yeah, people cram write. and learn it anyway because like and, they and got those into were my the highest program, scores so. with yeah. the Lang series review books. You know, a lot of medical yeah. schools the students don't even show up to class. So it's it's interesting to think about what education to become a doctor really is comprised of what what you really need and where the oh I'm so with really you on comes. that I, I think yeah I, I think it's I think it's a, it's a separate conversation but it it's so um 
as a sort of a historical artifact to try to distinguish people, you know, in the context of Flexner Report and to try to sort of give it some robustness, we're going to put on the scientific foundation, but how much you need that for the daily practice of medicine and, and how many people get excluded from the profession is, is it's absurd. But separate from the editorializing, um, uh, I want to get back to your journey. So I know you worked in several labs, traditional wet labs, molecular biology sort of thing, and ultimately chose to continue your training in pediatrics and emergency medicine at Harvard um, at Children's. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I went right into a residency in pediatrics and then a, a combined fellowship in uh, pediatric emergency medicine and medical toxicology also at Boston Children's. Wow. And it sounds like an unusual feature. I, I guess highlight doesn't quite feel like the right word of your training was your central role in a famous case where you were among those who identified the, the victim of, a, of one of the first kind of publicized cases of what's called shaken baby syndrome and testified in what was the second major case after the OJ case on court TV and had the experience, I guess you wouldn't say privilege, of being cross-examined by a uh, noted attorney Barry Sheck. So what was the story with all that? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, very um, profoundly influential experience I had as a junior faculty member. And, you know, I didn't really know what court TV was. Um, uh, but this was the second televised trial after the OJ trial and was really a, a big deal across um, the 24 hour news cycle, um, which was younger at the time. And uh, it was really amazing to see, first of all, um, you know, this tragic case, and then the, the news media's reaction to it. Um, and also, I learned a lot about what you can believe in the media and what you should not believe, um, and, and how the, what was reflected about the trial was so different than what was going on actually inside the courtroom. Huh. And, you know, it, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Well, you know, um, the case was cut and dry, um, but the goal, you know, in uh, the media is to always have uh, an exciting team sport going on with two teams, and it's always got to be close so that uh, you end up with a uh, exciting match. And even when it wasn't close, you know, the, um, uh, the, the stories in the, in the media would give uh, a balanced uh, perspective on what was happening on both sides. And it was- uh, So it's almost like a false equivalence you're describing? It's a false equivalence. And so, and so you, um, uh, it, you don't really understand it. You know, uh, the, interestingly, the defense uh, per, uh, presented its case as is always the case after the prosecution and the country tuned in after the prosecution's case. So the most, most of the country in the world ended up following the defense case on this. But fascinating uh, medical questions too, you know, um, are, it, are retinal hemorrhages pathic mnemonic for shaken baby? In other words, are they absolutely diagnostic for shaken baby? Yeah. And this is that this question, which was at the center of the trial, um, and I actually diagnosed those retinal hemorrhages in this boy when he came into the emergency department. Um, you know, it's a very interesting question. It, how accurate is a diagnostic feature when making a diagnosis? 
Um, ultimately, this, I don't think I realized it at the time, but this is an informatics question uh, as well in terms of how, do you, how, how does information play in? Uh, you know, the problem when you're uh, uh, trying to use that um, diagnostic feature is that, yeah, it does show up in some other conditions, like a bad car accident might produce right. retinal hemorrhages. But in fact, in the context of what happened, um, with the prior probabilities based on the situation that you had here and the comorbidities that this patient exhibited, like a skull fracture and 500 cc's of blood in his head, the retinal hemorrhages were for 100% sure uh, caused yeah. by a shaken in pec syndrome. Oh so very, very interesting, unexpected uh, resonance with um, a focus I've had on uh, sort of diagnostic paradigms. Wow. Um, so that, so having gone through that experience um, uh, and, and continuing not only your clinical training, you were also drawn to re continue to be drawn to research. And uh, you discovered an interesting new program, the Clinical Effectiveness Program that Lee Goldman, kind of a legend, um, had started. Um, and, um, uh, and it sounds like the, you, the first project that you worked on um, uh, both in your own experience and from what everyone told you was uh, suboptimal, as we say, um, and you need to pivot. So you uh, sought advice from someone you describe as a gentleman and a scholar, the great Howard Hyatt, whose son, incidentally, is a distinguished opinion writer and editor at the Washington Post. It sounds like um, uh, Dr. Hyatt offered you uh, great advice and recommended you speak with um, uh, both Troy Brennan and Paul Weiss, uh, both of whom would be amazing. You wound up working with uh, Troy, who's uh, now kind of a leader at CVS. Um, can you tell us about the project and your experience of working with uh, Troy? Yeah, well, it, it turned out to be a, a phenomenal project. I was studying what was called colloquially drive-through deliveries. So the uh, medical system was trying to save money uh, and do it in a responsible way by reducing the length of stay for women postpartum. And uh, well, when I say in a responsible way, this was, you know, at the, at, uh, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, they're trying to do responsibly. So they were going to do it with a prospective study. And the goal was to do intense measurements uh, of these women and the babies uh, both during their, during their hospitalization, after the hospitalization, and then even a little bit later after the hospitalization to be really sure that we captured both the biomedical and the psychosocial aspects of the policy change. And, you know, we had this uh, unfortunate or fortunate um, uh, secular issue, which is that a, a Massachusetts state senator in the middle of our study um, uh, passed a law that guaranteed a 48 hour stay to all postpartum women. And in some ways that's terrific, um, but it kind of outlawed my study. <laughs> and so in the middle of my fellowship study, it's, you know, it's sort of outlawed. And we, we pivoted and redesigned what was this very elegant time series analysis that was going to have three time points of measurement. We sort of reduced it to one and a half, but we still had the power to show that the reduced length of stay 
And by the way, I really enjoyed um, having my wife and, and two babies both stay for 48 hours in the hospital <laughs> later. But the question here was whether it was medically necessary uh, from, a, from a medical and psychosocial perspective. We had the power to show that that um, uh, policy change did not have adverse consequences. And the interesting thing is it was very hard to publish because we were really going against the grain. Here. This is such an important point, um, uh, Ken. I, I don't think many, it may be hard to realize outside of academia, but there are, there's an incredible, it's almost reductive to call it political correctness, but there is a definite sense of kind of incumbent views or favored views, however you want to characterize it. Um, and if you're publishing something, you know, whether scientifically that goes against the grain, and I would argue increasingly politically that goes against the grain or what is, you know, way harder to publish something around that than argue than if you have conclusions that reinforce uh, in a sense um, uh, uh, of that. And you're, you know. Well, it makes trying. me want to ask, like, what's the role of policymakers in or government lawmakers in medicine? Should there be one? Or should they just, there should be no laws about this. It should be based, I mean, you know, it's ironic right now because nobody wants to believe science is a real thing anymore. But, um, you know, how do you balance that? Well, you know, Great I have question. to say, I don't think these were bad laws. Um, they weren't evidence-based, but not everything has to be evidence-based. Um, and uh, I do think there's an important role for government in regulating medicine. And uh, I don't, I believe that medicine has proven that it doesn't always regulate itself adequately. Um, so I'm certainly in favor of, of appropriate government regulation. Um, here, you know, is an example of um, a regulation that probably could have been more nuanced um, and allowed more cost saving. And interestingly, um, while my paper was hard to publish, although we did publish it and was influential, um, you know, uh, I worked with an HMO afterwards who was very interested in the subject still. And we did a second study um, on a larger population, but with the exact same conclusion. And that was easy to publish. That slipped right into the New England Journal. And one reason might be that it was no longer a policy threat because the laws were in place. So it was a much safer study to publish from a policy perspective. Mm. And so I think the uh, community uh, felt more comfortable with those results once they weren't fearful of the outcome. Interesting. It's so, it, it's so interesting because the, the results that actually could drive policy, people are like, whoa, and maybe it'll actually succeed um, mm. potentially as a potential interpretation. We don't know. Um, so I, I know we're, we're, you know time is getting a little bit low, but I want to you know cover cover a couple more topics. So one is um, I know it at around this time in your career, uh, our, our mutual friend Zach Mahaney, uh founded the Children's Hospital Informatics Program, which you became deeply involved with. But what was interesting, like, looking at you now, is one of the things you were telling me was when you really started off there, you know, trying to combine informatics, you know, technology and medicine with this really amazing vision and your interest in subgroups and your interest in exceptional responders and you're you're kind of going about all of this for in such a thoughtful way for the right reasons it was brutal to get funding initially you described how you were trying for um 
five years to get your first major R01 grant. Um, yeah. And it just as you know, I, I don't think everyone, you look at someone so successful and you just don't realize, you know, in an area that seems like white hot and you don't realize that, you know, uh, when you, you know, like now you're a leader of it, but when you were getting going, it, you know, it's pretty frontier and hard, like really hard to get funding. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, we had these ideas um, about how to uh, empower uh, patients with their own data and to develop sort of patient-centric uh, approaches to computing, uh, how to improve doctor-patient communication using electronic technologies. Um, you know, I actually had uh, created the first uh, doctor secure doctor-patient email system and tried to get some funding on the basis of it. Um, and, you know, we have these reviews uh, from uh, that time uh, from the NIH uh, study section reviewers, and they would both say, uh, isn't this already happening in the dot-com world, would be one review, and then the other review would say, uh, this can't be done. So ah. we'd have to, in the same set of reviews, to say, it can't be done, it's already been done. Um, and the truth was, neither was the case. Um, it needed still to be done. And the... Uh, the lesson there is that in this field, you, you have to be persistent. Uh, and uh, academia is definitely really only an option for people who can accept a lot of rejection um, along the way. I mean, it is just absolutely a part of the job to- Yeah, I'm not sure that's uh, unique to academia. I mean. <laughs> After Lisa and I could tell you some stories from startups where it hasn't always been, um, uh, you know, roses I, from day one. I do think in, in medicine, pediatrics is sort of the poor stepchild, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, and I think that may be as profound of an impact as other things, right? You know, I think it's very hard to get funding for companies focused on children. It's very hard to get um, anything for money yeah. focused on it's, children. It's hard to convince people. Um, the children are important. Uh, not all my research has been only about children, um, but you know, it, you're right. It's it's hard, um, and uh, the 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 focus within the clinical trials um, enterprise, uh, the, the the amount of funding that's available, the amount of interest, the ability to also get uh, studies about children published in the highest impact medical journals. Uh, may uh, be less, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, poor, poor children, right? Well, and not only that, I think the, the, just the culture of the healthcare system is about treatment, not about prevention. Yes. And unless you're talking about very sick children, you're mostly talking about prevention of disease in later life, as opposed to treating them in a profitable way in the near term. But as we've heard, I mean, even, even pediatric cancer is hard. Yeah, I mean, people really are tough. really having trouble with funding and that's as acute as you could have. Yes. Um, so Ken, um, uh, just to con I mean, it took a while for you to get your funding, but you know, then your career took off. You became really one of the experts in syndromic surveillance, especially uh, you were interested in it before 9-11, but then there was a lot of more general interest in it after that. Um, and so there were, everything blossomed. Now, in a very limited amount of time we have, um, I, the one topic I want to ask you about is... Um, you know, you're particularly known for your foundational work in leadership, driving interoperability initiatives 
like a smart on fire, a concept I described several years ago in Forbes as, quote, our last best hope for interoperability. Um, since every, not everyone in the audience is going to even, like, even have that background, um, could you sort of give like a, a, um, the most basic, you know, someone doesn't really have an understanding about it, but cares about these issues in general. What problem were you trying to solve and how does this approach it? Yeah, so it's really a problem of innovation. And so when someone like me wants to do something innovative with the informatics tools that are at my disposal or that I'd like to develop, it's extraordinarily difficult to move that innovation to the point of care. And that's the problem I was trying to solve. And so when the um, uh, 2008 uh, Great Recession occurred, uh, there was an opportunity um, that the Obama administration seized upon to grab $48 billion out of the Recovery Act and to invest it in the pr promotion of the purchase and use of, of something called electronic medical records. And these, at the time, in 2008, were, um, were you know, 20-year-old pieces of software or older that um, had been designed for billing and for sort of making sure that hospitals and practices could capture as much revenue as possible uh, from a visit. Um, and then were sort of augmented to do documentation, which you know you kind of could do with Microsoft Word, but this was a more complicated approach. Um, and um, something called order entry, where you could order drugs in a, in a rational fashion without worrying about doctor's bad handwriting um, and e-prescribing. And so these systems were to be used all of a sudden universally. There was a 5% adoption rate and during the um, $48 billion investment, which a lot of it was kind of incentive payments to doctors, a little bit of a bribe to use these systems under the uh, assumption that once a physician was using this great technology, they would never go back. And we'd have a much more data-driven healthcare system with uh, uh, insights that could be uh, given to policymakers and physicians throughout. And so, Having used these systems in my clinical practice as an, as an emergency physician, I knew that these were not going to deliver the, um, the, uh, on the promise uh, that this investment uh, was based on. And so what I proposed in the New England Journal was that if you're going to do this, let's look at this new model that's just emerged, the iPhone. The iPhone was one year old. I said, look, if you, the iPhone, uh, was successful because it opened up the platform to third-party applications. Hmm. Um, and that meant that all of a sudden, um, innovators could be in an app store. They could compete with each other um, on innovation, on quality, on usability, on price, um, on value. And uh, you had a market. And the market didn't exist with the current at the time um, electronic medical record environment because there was essentially vendor lock and no integration possible with externals, external um, uh, 
software. And so the problem I wanted to solve was that if an innovator, whether it's a kid in his garage or whether it's Google, um, has an application that they want to get to the point of care, it should be plug and play the same way the apps are on the iPhone. The app should be substitutable. They should be added to or deleted from the electronic medical record easily. And so we proposed that this would happen through something called an API, an application programming interface, which is exactly what Steve Jobs had uh, published for the iPhone and was an increasing- After initially objecting to it, by the way, right? Yes, his, his, uh, his underlings uh, convinced him to open this platform up. Um, you know, Windows was already open to third-party developers. It was very successful and had a very large market. And I think this, was, this uh, did not fall on deaf ears among uh, various executives at Apple. And so it turned out that from the time uh, this piece was written at the end of 2008, when there were 10,000 apps for the iPhone, to the time it was published at the beginning of 2009, there were 50,000 apps for the iPhone. We got funded to actually make this vision come true with a $15 million grant from um, Health and Human Services. And by, by one year after um, we had published the paper, there was now more software code written for the iOS platform than any other software project in history. And mm. so this model, which we've been pushing on now for 10 years, we moved from kind of an idea to actually something that uh, earlier this year was um, uh, uh, regulated on the basis of a sentence that I got into a law called the 21st Century Cures Act Cures that Act. requires that this API be there. And now we've moved to the, to the uh, part of the story where looking forward, we're trying to figure out how do we build now on this API and actually help with with both business models and also technical models. Are you able to get enough this. access from vendors still? I mean, it's been, not from all of them. Like I know Cerner has been a little bit more of a participant. Epic has participated more grudgingly, it seems, but participated. Um, the um, Are you able to get enough information out that you can, uh, and getting, in, getting enough cooperation from the, from these vendors who've thrived on vendor lock that you're able to be su successful enough to persuade the end users? Well, you know, th that's exactly the question. We have to persuade the end users and we have to persuade the software developers that this is a great platform to develop against. Otherwise we won't have it be in the app store to nowhere. Um, and so the answer is that the electronic medical record vendors are both reluctant because there are business model threats um, but they've also been actually phenomenally collaborative. Um, and, hmm. you know, we work with the technical folks at these companies and they have advanced the ball, um, I think with great uh, skill and um, enthusiasm. But isn't there a lot of pushback? I mean, I don't, I mean, some of the companies are better than others and some are great, yeah. but I think the owners of the data, and by the way, those are not the patients, unfortunately. <laughs> are really the biggest um, barrier to this in some ways. You know, the, the data that's necessary to make all this stuff useful is considered an asset by those who hold it, you know, and yes. this they don't want to share it. They don't want to make it fluid and available freely without a toll, right? It's a huge issue. And the beauty of the regulation, 
which was is based on the law, is that uh, in addition to requiring these APIs, um, there's there are there are provisions that prevent information blocking. So even if a company or health system sees it as not in their interest to share data with an application, um, either directed by a patient or otherwise. Um, they're subject to the information blocking provisions, which have real teeth in them. And so uh, they do, we're but they've got to enforce it, right? And the it's paper. rough, right? I mean, if, if it's really hard to get people to do something that they're in, believe they're financially incentivized not to do. Yes, it is, it is by no means predetermined that we're successful, which mm -hmm. is why we are continuing to push on this. An interesting thing, you know, Apple is actually the biggest uh, user of our application programming interface to date. They modified their, they created that their, their health app to have a health records section. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, I got it right here. <laughs> yeah, and you can download your records in Fire on the basis of using our Smart on Fire API. Um, and they've made health data available to patients at, at hundreds of healthcare systems for easy download. But what this interesting thing happens as you're just as where you're where you're sort of been pointing is that what when you uh, when when the patient asks for their data, if if it's going to be a patient app directed application, patient uh, focused application, when they ask for their data, it, it they ask for it to come across the API onto their phone, as it magically traverses the API, the data go from being protected by HIPAA inside the healthcare entity to actually uh, protected by the Federal Trade Commission uh, once it's in the phone. And so the Federal Trade Commission is actually um, very interested in this area and is trying to get up to speed on what they can do. But all they're authorized to do right now is to enforce the, um, the, uh, the privacy policies and terms and conditions that were promised to the patient at the time uh, of registering for the app. And so there's real need for additional legislation, regulation, model privacy policies, standards of practice. So it's a pretty fascinating mm -hmm. uh, field. Let me ask you a related question, like maybe a final question. It's maybe it's a little nerdy on some of the standard stuff. Based on uh, some uh, discussion I've had with our mutual uh, friend, uh, Eric Praxless, right? Sure. and previous Tectonics guests. Um, you know, and it's how do you see the role of standards? Because on the one hand, you know, the lack of standards can impede progress, obviously. And there are so many examples where the agreement to a standard has just launched something forward once people agree. Um, uh, on the other hand, um, I mean, and, and, and you see in emergency rooms or in, or in an inpatient setting, I mean, you literally have parallel sets of equipment that can't talk to each other. And that's absurd. On the other hand, like people like Eric always highlight that at some level, you also need to work with what you have and you can't have the perfect be the enemy of the good. And when people start saying, well, we really need to get standards set before we can really do this. He um, doesn't, he reacts that, okay, that's like, you have to use, even as you strive for that, you have to start working with what you have now. How do you approach that tension? Well, I mean, I think uh, you've put it uh, very articulately. And, you know, we are in such agreement with you and Eric here, which is how I think we made this project successful. We first built it um, and had it working and had real apps 
and then we standardized it. So we built it in a way that we thought should be the standard, but we certainly didn't wait around. And what we've done is, you know, in collaboration with standards organizations like HL7 now, we have at least so far had this very good um, push and pull where we're developing out there on the bleeding edge. Then we go and try to standardize it through HL7 and the feds are in with us on this as well. And then they put that into policy and regulation. And so at least for the last few years, um, we've really hit the right, um, uh, the right model, I think. For, it's for kind of interesting, right? Because like, you know, I know that you know, there's been a mixed reaction to I mean, maybe people in academia, there's some folks in the current administration, but one guy, this ONC, uh, Rucker, right? Don Rucker? Yeah. He's been yeah. really strong, hasn't he? Yeah, so um, I've been uh, colleagues uh, with uh, Don since uh, we worked together on uh, NIH committees at the National Library of Medicine together, and he really uh, pushed this, he really kicked this ball forward in ways that were by, you know, very bipartisan. It, this has been yeah. the most bipartisan thing that's been mm -hmm. going on in the country that I'm aware of. It, not only was the 21st Century Cures Act in this language yeah. enacted in a very bipartisan way totally. at the end of yeah. the Obama administration, but these regulations were worked on with ex-Obama uh, White House officials uh, in really close collaboration uh, with this administration and, and, and something got done. That's fantastic. Uh, so um, it's so exciting to see what you accomplished, what it, it seems like it's enabling. I think it's so easy to develop a feeling of sort of like fatalistic negativity about a lot of stuff and to instead say, well, let's actually do it. And then with persistence that you've demonstrated consistently across your career, you know, really drive um, you know, what seems like it has already been meaningful change and, you know, really can, may help, um, you know, by having a success, I mean, uh, you can really change how, how the future uh, uh, is built. Um, just one quick example. Um, again, I'm obsessed with this uh, book on LBJ, but it was interesting when they were trying to bring uh, electricity to, to this, like, you know, hill country in Texas, the whole objection was, oh, these poor hill people, they're never going to use electricity, whatever it is. But what it turned out is actually, no, once people see the capabilities of it, then all of a sudden they start to use it more and more and more because they realize all the different things that can be hooked up to it. And it seems like by showing the possibility, that's very much the motivation of, 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 uh, of what you've had. But we're so grateful for you being here and taking the time to share um, your fascinating journey and your incredibly important work. Really great talking to you, Ken. Thank you, uh, Lisa and David. Pleasure to be here. That was a terrific show with Dr. Ken Mandel, of, um, an informatician and pediatric emergency specialist at uh, Boston Children's Hospital. Yeah, I always enjoy talking to folks that, that work in pediatrics. I think it's such an underserved and underappreciated area. Um, and if you do the right thing for children, you set people up for a lifetime of better health. And our system is really not designed to do that. So it's almost a labor of love for people to choose that path. I think it is. And I think he's, you know, he's doing so much, not only the pediatrics and the pediatrics ER stuff, but also really being such a pioneer um, on what's such a challenging battle to try to really improve. You know, take, initially he really was taking on all of these um, 
really vested interest um, these these EMR vendors mm-hmm. and over time EHR vendors and over time I think you know he's really helped kind of reshape the view and um, you know show what's possible so just uh, such inspiring stuff please um, remember to rate us on iTunes leave a comment and help others discover the show you can follow David's column Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report and you can follow the wonderful Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful to our sponsor, Manat Health, for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of patients across America's healthcare system. The firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in the heart of quarantine in Northern California. Take care of yourselves. Goodbye from the virtual reality.